So Mark 11, beginning at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I was one of the 105,000 people in the record-breaking crowd at the MCG recently when Ed Sheeran performed his mathematics tour. I'm not a particular fan of Ed's, and I'm definitely not a fan of mathematics but, <laughs> but it was amazing to be in a crowd that large. Everyone singing the same song, and when everyone turned on their phone lights and the whole MCG lit up and sparkled onto the night sky, it was pretty amazing. Just for a moment, there is this euphoric crowd of people who are all captured by this one English guy standing in the middle of the stage with a guitar. It was really incredible. There was one point in the night when Ed decided to do a tribute song and he played Throw Your Arms Around Me by Hunters and Collectors. However, the audience was made up mainly of millennials to alphas, I guess, and they didn't know the song. <laughs> and it was meant to be this hearty Aussie tribute to um, his um, music promoter, Michael Ginnessy. It ended up sounding a little bit more like a mediocre, mediocre um, mumble, really, um, rather than anything else in particular. The crowd was here to hear Ed's playlist, not some 80s Aussie rock. <laughs> um, crowds can be fickle. As soon as they don't get what they want, they can turn pretty quickly. And it's not hard to imagine why the crowd that we read about just before was so excited when Jesus entered Jerusalem. He'd been performing miracles. He had been upstaging the establishment. And it was Passover, the time when the Jews remembered their slavery in Egypt and God's deliverance. They were filled with nationalistic zeal and they'd had enough of being under the thumb of Rome. They wanted God to act and they wanted that now. Enter Jesus. He rides in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's all the crowd needs. In their cultural upbringing, they can recall the stories of King Solomon 
entering Jerusalem on a donkey to be crowned king. They can remember the famous prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The crowd is ready to make Jerusalem great again. And they spread out their cloaks and branches, just as one would welcome a king. They're praising Jesus, right? Isn't that good? Well, there's a problem. They may be praising Jesus on the outside, but on the inside, their worship is much more self-directed than Jesus-centered. They have what I call spiritual myopia. They're spiritually short-sighted. And so what I want to look at tonight is how can we cultivate spiritual long-sighted thinking in a short-sighted world? How can we cultivate spiritual long-sighted thinking in a short-sighted world? In 19th century India, under British colonial rule, there were some venomous cobras all throughout the streets of Delhi. And this terrified the British that were there, and so to fix the problem, the authorities offered a reward for anyone who could collect, um, kill, and bring a dead cobra to them. However, this backfired because they discovered that the locals were now breeding cobras to profit from the scheme. Very entrepreneurial. Once the authorities discovered this, they cancelled the program, but then the locals were indignant, and so they released the cobras back onto the streets. And they ended up growing into triple the population. Short-sighted thinking. Another name to be familiar with regarding short-sighted is Thomas Austin. Has anyone ever heard of him? Thomas Austin was a wealthy English settler who made his home in Winchelsea in Victoria. And interestingly enough, the Austin Hospital is named after his widow but he's much more well-known for another reason. In 1859, Austin had 24 European rabbits sent over to his estate so that he could enjoy some hunting. You can see where this is going. In his words, the introduction of a few rabbits could do little harm and might provide a touch of home. Well, that touch of home took 50 years to spread over the entire continent of Australia, as we know. And it has wreaked havoc over native species and led to soil erosion and the destruction of many plants and wildlife. Short-sightedness. No one wants to get caught being short-sighted. And spiritual myopia is just as, if not more deadly, than being short-sighted in this life. So firstly, how are the crowd short-sighted? What do I mean by this? Well, the crowds were desperate for political and religious independence. It had been two centuries since the Maccabees had been victorious over the loathsome Syrian ruler Antichius and reclaimed the temple and they marched around with palm branches to celebrate their victory. It's only John's gospel that mentions that the branches were palm branches. 
But the words that the crowd shouts, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, points to their messianic fervour, that Jesus be the king that they long for, who will free them from the Romans. And even the disciples are caught up in this. In chapter 10, if you look at your Bibles, just beforehand, Jesus has just for the third time told them that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he will be condemned to death, that he will be handed over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. He says that for the third time in chapter 10. And then straight after, we read that the disciples are arguing about who will be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom and who will get to sit next to him on his throne. They just don't understand and they want Jesus to suit their agenda. Jesus has given them clues that he is the king, but that he's a different kind of king. And he comes to save them in a different kind of way to what they want. So I wonder then, for us, how are we prone to being short-sighted? Just like the crowd, we can be spiritually myopic. We can bank on a particular political leader or party or cause to restore our hopes for society. We can look to ourselves for our achievements through work to bring about the ideal life that we long for. We can even put our faith in Jesus and be religious, but for completely the wrong reasons. We can seek out Jesus to meet our desires, to fulfill our wants, and it's only when he doesn't meet our expectations that we realise that we were only worshipping him to meet our own agenda. It's like the genie in the bottle. The genie may be all-powerful, and able to grant any wish that one makes, but he is subject to the recipient making the wishes. He can only act once he has been commanded. Is Jesus your genie? Must he fit your agenda? The people wanted a powerful king who would free them from their enemy. The empire of Rome, a leader who would make them feel strong and powerful too. They thought they knew exactly what God should do and what sort of rescuer he should send. If God just listened to them, then everything would be fine. But if God did that, would that make God the king or the people? You don't boss around a king, you do what they say, don't you? God had a bigger plan than what the people thought or even wanted. They had different ideas on what a king should do and what was best for them. I think this sounds pretty familiar to us, doesn't it? God wanted to free them from their bigger enemy, the enemy that keeps them stuck and in slavery forever, the one who is closer than we believe and, in, and impossible to conquer ourselves. Not Rome, not work problems, not not having something, not wanting something, but sin, not out there, but in here. The people wanted God to free them from the Romans, but there would always be another enemy or another obstacle in their way, 
in our way, making life miserable. And I doubt that the Jewish leaders would be any better than the Roman leaders um, in terms of caring for the vulnerable in their land. Power tends to corrupt. Their greatest problem, and ours, is our sin. And so God doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. Jesus didn't come to deliver us from the obstacles that get in the way of our idols, of the things that we think will give us meaning or worth, the things that John T. mentioned before. Our sin is that we ask Jesus to conquer our obstacles so that we can have our idols, to give us the partner or the influence or the comfort or the control that we seek in order to be satisfied and fulfilled. Jesus can just be a means to an end. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. By treating Jesus like a genie, we miss out on a much deeper satisfaction and infinite joy that is found by allowing Jesus to be king and to set the agenda to be the means to a much more satisfying joy and to be the culmination of all our deepest hopes and dreams. So God's approach is the opposite to what we expect or perhaps even want. It is the inner enemy that Jesus came to rescue us from. And if we look at the entry to Jerusalem in context, we see that straight after his entry, If we continue on in chapter 11, Jesus curses a fig tree, which is in leaf, but it's without fruit. And then he goes to the temple and he overturns the tables and clears them all out. The fig tree represents the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. They're not bearing fruit. And quite the opposite, actually, they've turned the temple into a place that is commercialised and exclusive and a vehicle to their own greed. Now, you can't walk into someone's house and start rearranging things and chucking things out and making it the way you want to, can you? The only way you have the right to do that is if it belongs to you. These religious people have made worship all about themselves and not about God. It is their spiritual myopia. They have completely missed who God is. So Jesus subverts their expectations of a messianic king. He shows them, yes, that he is powerful and mighty. He can command people and his will is done. He can know things ahead of time that a normal person wouldn't know. We see that everything belongs to him and that everyone obeys him. And yet, he enters on a donkey's fault. 
He is, in the words of Zechariah chapter 9, lowly and humble. He doesn't overcome violence with more violence. He's not the bigger bully. He could easily do that, but he doesn't. He comes in humility. The way that Jesus defeats our enemies once and for all is not through power, but through giving up power. Not through strength, but through weakness. Not through belittling and demeaning and vanquishing his enemies, but by lowering and humbling himself, by becoming one of them, siding with them, dying for them, and taking on the consequences of their actions himself. Not through a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. Jesus is a different kind of king, and he delivers us in a different kind of way, the way we need. As Jesus enters Jerusalem as the victorious king, the descendant from David, he is, in fact, on his way to die. It's like the movie Dead Man Walking, when a condemned prisoner on death row was walking to their execution. People would call out, dead man walking, because there was no escape. They're on their way to certain death. Each step that Jesus takes, he knows will lead him closer to the cross. Those watching him couldn't imagine that this sort of king was the one that they needed. I wonder if you can. Do you see Jesus as the type of king you need? The type of king that you want? So thirdly, how can we cultivate spiritual long-sighted thinking? How can we do that? Well, it begins with who we worship. Spiritual myopia says, God has to say yes to what I want. He has to approve my desires, my point of view, my idea about what's right and wrong, and that God is only good or worth having in my life if he gives me everything that I want. That's spiritual myopia. Spiritual long-sightedness says, God knows best. We might think we know, but God actually knows. And so if we knew what God knows, we might make different choices now. And if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. There might be good things that we really want. It could be about our families. It could be about our work. It could be about our future. And we might pray to God, but he doesn't seem to be saying yes. But when we think that way, it's important to remember that God gave us his most precious treasure, his son, and that he doesn't hold anything back from us that's actually good for us. If God gave his dearly loved son to die on the cross for us because he loved us so much, we can trust that he really does love us and he will say yes to the things that are best for us in the long term. Sometimes we're short-sighted and we can't see that the ways that God is working for our good. I'm sure that's just how the disciples felt. 
on Easter Saturday after Jesus died. They just couldn't see how God could make things good after the worst day ever watching Jesus, their Lord, die. So we need spiritual long-sightedness. Jesus is the type of king who gives up everything for you so you can trust him with everything that's important to you. He is trustworthy. That's long-sighted. This leads me to the fourth and final point. Who we worship is who we imitate. Living as a Christian does not make sense, just as the one that we worship doesn't make sense. Why should I be generous and sacrificial with my money when I worked for it? Why should I be forgiving and gracious? Why should I deny living by my desires? Why should I put others first? Having Jesus as our king changes our lives too. And it challenges us to see things through his long-term perspective. Jesus' church in this world looks weak and ineffective, just like Jesus did. But take courage. God works his power through weakness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The paradox of Jesus is that he is the victorious king, but that he achieves this through self-abasement and sacrifice. And when you think about it, our response to this sort of king can't be to exalt ourselves, but to follow in his footsteps to take up our cross and follow him, to trust that true fulfilment is found in him who gives everything for us. So if you're struggling with trusting God, look to the king who provides for us. Rejoice greatly. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Come, let's worship this glorious king.